and the back table somewhere back there, there's these. And uh, before I say more, Blair is passing out some pens if you need a pen for filling out the outline this morning. This is a pre-nomination form for elders and deacons. If you have recommendations, we'd really, hopefully, you would give those. It would be very helpful to the elders. And just put those in the offering plate. We got till next week to get those in. <clears throat> well, I will um, hopefully make it through the message this morning without my voice giving out. I have two very generous, small grandchildren that bring every bug home from daycare. And uh, the smoke hasn't helped a whole lot the last few days. <clears throat> We're beginning a series for the rest of the summer in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> On the front of your outline, at the top it says, Facing Life's Mountains. Facing Life's Challenges. I'm old enough to tell you that no matter how old you get, life is filled with challenges, and they never stop. The day that you have no more challenges... You will die, most likely. That just goes with life. <clears throat> and when God has a particular mountain to climb, God always chooses a man. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, he chose a man, Moses. When God delivered Israel from Jabed the Canaanite, he chose a man, the woman, Deborah. When God warned Nineveh of judgment to come, he chose a man, Jonah. And when God became flesh and dwelt among men, he chose a man, the virgin, the virgin maiden, Mary. It's always been that way. God's plan through the ages of human history to do his will among men has always been to choose people through whom he accomplishes his purpose. Every one of us here have mountains to climb, and many of them are God-assigned mountains. Your mountain may be, mother, to fashion the clay of that little child so that he will be or she will be receptive to the Lord Jesus when, when that child begins to understand. Your primary challenge in life, husband, may simply be to be the husband God intended for you to be, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Your challenge may be to build a factory. I don't know what it might be. It might be to, to patch a net. Huh, Bill? That is torn to shreds. But in the building, in the mending, in the whatever, God chooses us to do these things, whatever they may be. And God has given a destiny to all of us. While the choosing, with the choosing, there follows the challenge. Always does. 
for Nehemiah, the challenge was to build the walls of Jerusalem. Our text is short, so I want to read it. Nehemiah chapter 1, 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Sushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity, and I asked them concerning Jerusalem. And here's what they said to me. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses." Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed, by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, referring to King Artaxerxes, for I was his cupbearer. Father, I thank you for the challenges of life. Many of them are unpleasant. And our first response is to avoid, to do anything but face up to whatever it might be. It's a natural human inclination. Father, you have called us to face life. You have promised to face it with us. And Lord, this morning there are folks here that are facing immense mountains, very, very difficult challenges. And some of those challenges, Father, are unending. They, they just go on and on and on. There seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Father, for these, we, we pray for their strengthening, for their persistence, and their ability to draw upon you and depend upon you. And Father, as I think of that, I, I think of the millions around the world of our brothers and sisters who are facing incredible persecution. The woman who has been 
on, who is on death row in Somalia or Sudan. The man in Iran who is facing a long jail sentence simply for being a Christian. But they are just two of hundreds and thousands. Lord, they ask us to pray that they would remain strong, that they would remain faithful. And so that's what we pray. And I pray, Father, that your presence would be their strength. May that be true of us as well as we face our mountains. I pray that you'll be our teacher this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last 2,000 years, the Great Commission has been our marching orders. Jesus said, All authority is given unto me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you, excuse me, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of this age, in this process, in my authority. I am with you as you are open and sensitive and outward looking toward those about you that you might share the faith of Jesus Christ and give them the opportunity to become authentic, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Generally, that is our commission. Specifically, as we go through this text in Nehemiah, I'm going to be drawing applications that relate to us as a church and then personally to apply what we find in this book to the mandate that God has given to each of us individually. Now this being the first message, uh, we need to frame the book. On the back of the outline, you will see at the very top left it says Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Followed by the, his, the history books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then the poetic, the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then on the opposite column, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehemiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I learned those as a song, and I still, so they're still with me. Now, those, those prophets, all but Daniel, who prophesied during the captivity, which is referred to uh, in his prayer, of Nehemiah's prayer. And then the post-exile, or post-captivity, would be the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now over on the left in the historical section, well, first of all, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, all these prophets prophesied during that time of the kingdom era of Israel, with the exception of Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And over on the left, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. <coughs> the book of, ne- um, of Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament chronologically. That's where it fits, clear at the very end of the prophets. It covers the period of time after Israel's captivity in Babylon and sets the stage historically for the conditions as they were when Jesus was born 400 years later. The book of Nehemiah begins in Babylon, actually Sushan, 
Babylon had been uh, taken over by the Medo-Persians. Sushan was the, the summer palace. And this is where we find Nehemiah as the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. The book of Nehemiah ends in Jerusalem, where Nehemiah is then the governor of the area. Originally, Nehemiah was called Second Ezra, because Ezra and Nehemiah are so closely related. Now, I want to form the circumstances regarding Nehemiah the man. Impossible circumstances. Oops, I skipped something here. Uno momento. Thank you. Much appreciated. My notes are out of line. They're not. It's the operator of this clicker. Impossible circumstances. As we read, Nehemiah asked these questions of these brethren from Jerusalem, and, and he wept, and he fasted, and he prayed. He was deeply moved. Why? He was so deeply personally moved because of the report that they gave. And, and this is reflected in the lament of Psalm 137, which says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows, for there those who carried us away captive required of us a song, and those who plundered us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Can you imagine? There was no way that they could. Nehemiah never forgot who he was, where he was, or where he'd come from. And uh, there's a, uh, Lauren Countryman, did you go, are you still here? Oh, here you are. You know the name Travis Troyer. His mother uh, told me how that in his teenage years, every time he went out the door, Travis's mom would say to him, remember who you are. <laughs> Why was she wise? Uh, that, you know, when we remember who we are, it'll keep us out of a whole lot of trouble. But more than that, Nehemiah understood who he was. He, he was one of God's chosen people. He represented the living God, the God of heaven, even though he was in captivity in a foreign land. He remembered who he was. But what could one man do in the palace at Sushan? Sushan <clears throat> was in the, at, near the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River, near what we would call modern-day Kuwait. And to get to Jerusalem, you had to go up the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, clear up into Syria, and then back down. Sushan was straight east of Jerusalem, but it was an 800-mile, 1,600-mile round trip by camel. No small accomplishment. Sushan was the Washington, D.C. of the day, the center of all late-breaking news. 
And Babylon, now controlled by the Medo-Persians, was an absolute world uh, world uh, power and government. As a foreign captive serving an authoritarian, authoritarian dictator, in the only superpower state of the day, Nehemiah was an improbable person. For I was the king's cupbearer. In 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 20, we learn there that Nehemiah was probably a eunuch. There is no mention of Mrs. Nehemiah. There is no mention of his children. And we read in 2 Kings 20, verse 18, and a prophecy of what was going to come given to King Hezekiah. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. More than likely, this was true of Nehemiah. An ardent follower of Teddy Roosevelt once exclaimed, Mr. Roosevelt, you're such a great man. And in characteristic honesty, he replied, No, Teddy Roosevelt is simply a plain, ordinary man, highly motivated. Nehemiah was such a man, highly, highly motivated. Just think of it. 800 miles away, a captive in a foreign land, one person, build the wall of Jerusalem? you got to be kidding. Impossible circumstances, improbable person. But when God puts his hand upon plain, ordinary men who are highly motivated, he also gives mountain-moving abilities. And he gives those abilities as they are needed. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king in chapter 1, but then he became the building supervisor in the next few chapters, and finally the governor of the whole land. And one final introductory matter. These were imperative times. It was 606 B.C. when Israel was taken captive. The first, the first captivity. And Jeremiah prophesied at that time in Jeremiah 29:10, For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. You're going to be in Babylon 70 years. And exactly 70 years later, in 536 B.C., the first return under Zerubbabel and Haggai. They returned under the preaching of Haggai and the badgering of uh, Habakkuk. The badgering of Haggai and the preaching of Zerubbabel. Uh, the people finally uh, got a little passion together and they built the temple. But it was like 70 years later, 72, before they built the walls of Jerusalem. And then, only when King Artaxerxes, under the request of Nehemiah, 
began the building of the walls. Now there's something very significant here in the building of the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Nisan was the first month of the year. And the 20th year of King Artaxerxes was the year 444 B.C. Why is that significant? It is significant because in Daniel chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 25, Therefore understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That happened in the first of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. From that point in time until Messiah the Prince, there will be 69 weeks. There are weeks of days and there are weeks of years in the Hebrew calendar. 69 weeks is 483 years. Beginning in 444 B.C. with the command to go and build the walls of Jerusalem until the very day that Jesus Messiah offered himself as the King of the Jews as he entered Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday, on the foal, the colt of a donkey, as Zechariah said would happen, Jesus came and the people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. To the day this prophecy was fulfilled in Daniel. Thus the times were set for Jesus' first coming. And there's just two things that I want to point out from our text this morning. The first is the priority of a mountain mover. Nehemiah was a man of unwavering conviction. His convictions defined him as a man. We could stop the sermon right there this morning and ask ourselves, do our convictions define us? I love to to ask teenagers, what are you passionate about? And you know, for, for many people, they're passionate about, and not just teenagers, Video games. Well, whoopee-doo. That's what uh, flips your switch. Is there anything that you're passionate about that you'd be willing to die for? That's another question I ask. Is there anything in your life that you are passionate about, so passionate that you'd be willing to die? You'd be willing to die for it. I can think of two in my life. Actually, three. I'm passionate about the Word of God. I'm passionate about Jesus Christ. And I've been reading my Bible. And I'm passionate about my wife of 47 years. I would die for her as she would for me. Husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself in death for her. Man, if us men had that mentality, all of us, all the time, Can you imagine how beautiful all the women would be in this church? For a wife reflects the glory 
her husband. When a woman is treated right by her husband, she's a beautiful woman, no matter what. Works that way every time. Well, this message is not about marriage. I don't know how I got off on that. But <clears throat> anyway, he was purpose-driven. His convictions just naturally made him involved. In verse 2, he asked Hanani, is that, was that his name? Yeah, Hanani, one of his associates who had brought these men from Judah in to see him. He asked them two questions concerning the Jews and concerning Jerusalem. And I want to say that Nehemiah had it made, but he wasn't satisfied with creature comforts. He wasn't satisfied with position. His life had purpose beyond that. So he asked, and what is so amazing is he heard. He listened and he really heard. He heard not just with his ears, but with his heart. He was involved. He didn't isolate himself. He was involved even though he had it made. And so he became informed. And he was informed that the survivors are there in great distress and reproach. Regarding the people of God, they're living in difficulty and shame. The word distress means misery or calamity, and the word reproach means just that, sharp cutting. And the idea is bearing the brunt of cutting words. And we're going to see this reflected throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. The people of the area made fun, ridiculed, uh, put down these feeble Jews, all through the book of Nehemiah. This was the, the atmosphere in which they lived. And in the regard to God's work, uh, the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates were burned. <clears throat> Symbolically, the walls of Jerusalem symbolized to the Jewish person security, salvation, and strength. This was the holy city. This was the city of God. And the bottom line, with the gates burned and the walls down, it reflected upon the person and the reputation of God Almighty in the, in the mind of a Jewish person of that day. This bothered Nehemiah. I think the most significant factor was not that he was involved and informed, but that he was infected. I'm, I'm not saying he was affected, he was infected. So it was that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Nehemiah was called to build the walls of Jerusalem, but before he did, he wept over the walls. And you know, that's where the church in America today, this church included, we're not infected by the plight of our nation, by the plight of our communities, by the plight of our churches and our families. We're not infected because we're not weeping over it. He got on his knees and he wept over the condition. My question is this, do our passions reflect the heart of God? Or are we too preoccupied and busy with everything else that we're not involved, we're not informed, and we come across as if we didn't care it's though life is all about us, but it's not. The entire book of Nehemiah happened because he let the ruins of Jerusalem and the reproach of its people 
to infect his soul. Remember, Nehemiah was but one man, a mere cupbearer with no resources and no influence. He had only one thing going for him, divine audacity. (laughs) Divine audacity. He had the audacity to believe that God could use him to do something about the condition of the people in Jerusalem and the walls that were torn down. And he got that divine audacity on his knees. That's the second thing I wanted to mention here this morning. Nehemiah wept over the walls and then he prayed. The posture of a mountain mover. Not independent and autonomous, but dependent and attentive to God. As it says in Psalm 23.2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, and the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. That was Nehemiah's posture, focus. The value he placed upon coming to God is seen in, in the focused attention. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How many of you fast and pray? Don't raise your hand, please. You put me to shame. I don't fast and pray. I've only fasted two or three times in my life when there was some very, very significant thing. Now let me tell you, I care deeply. I've never fasted. Maybe I will one of these days, but I, I do a lot of praying over my grandkids. They're really important to me. And I believe that God has placed me in a position to have a, a deep impact in their lives. And I care. And, I, and so I pray. And yes, I've wept at times. And you know, in my family, it's just amazing to me to see the miracles that God has done. Just in the last year or so, the four oldest of my grandkids have been baptized, given their lives to the Lord. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing to behold. Uh, God is doing great things in our family, and I, uh, I praise be to Him. Prayer was His first response, not His last resort. Men who move God-assigned mountains know that apart from his mandate, his guidance, and his enabling power, it'll never happen. You look at this project. The king orders the wall to be built in the next chapter. He supplies the materials, pays for the cost, and provides an armed guard for Nehemiah to go from Sushan to Jerusalem. My experience in God-sized mountains is when God gives the assignment, there's two ways to accomplish it. The first is by pulling teeth, and the second is by pulling rank. Pulling teeth is when you are doing it in the power of the flesh, and you're just trying to make it happen, and you're just giving it all you got, and it it ain't happening. The other way to do it is to pull rank. How do you do that? You get on your knees and ask God to accomplish the project according to his purpose and will and plan. Prayer is pulling rank. I believe in that deeply. We really get to look inside of Nehemiah as we listen to him pray. Verse 5, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O God, O great and awesome God, you who keep covenant, Did you get that? 
he prays, oh, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant, you who keep your promises. You know what that is? That's spiritual blackmail. You pray like that. God, I, you made a promise. I'm holding you to it. Oh, I love that. That's the way to pray. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I am the Lord and I change not. And in James chapter 1, verse 17, speaking of the Father, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God cannot lie. God will not lie. And if he made a promise, hold him to it. That's what Nehemiah did. Then after promising a Redeemer, a Messiah, Jesus validated the character of God with his own blood when he became our Redeemer on that cross in fulfillment of the covenant and the promises that God had made. When God says, thus and so, I promise, whatever it is, it will come to pass because God is not changeable. He does not lie because he cannot lie. One of the questions that we debated at the Off the Wall Ministry two or three years ago where Lauren has been this last year was, is God impeccable? What does that mean? I know we put pectin in jellies, but impeccable. That means, did Jesus have the possibility of sinning and didn't? Or he didn't sin because he couldn't? And if he didn't sin because he couldn't, and he couldn't because he was God, that means he was impeccable. Did I have that right, Jacob? I'm with you. Sounds good, huh? Yeah. You were impressed. Okay, well, that, that had quite a debate. That was a, that was a lot of fun that we had that day. <clears throat> Now, know what comes next. In verse 6 and 7, as he prays and confesses sin, he says, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly, and indeed they had. And God put up with it for over 400 years in the kingdom age. And he said, enough already. And he sent them to discipline them into captivity. And now, as he promised, he's bringing them back. And by the way, they didn't learn. And after another 450 years, God finally dispersed the children of Israel among all the nations of the Israel, of the world, over 1,800 years until 70 years ago, the end of the Holocaust. And this is the 70th anniversary. On the 25th and the 26th of April in um, Israel, they, they have the... Uh, Holocaust Memorial Weekend. And it was 70 years. And during that 70 years, God, as he said, a second time would draw the children of Israel back to the nation. God has been drawing them back for 70 years. And Israel became a nation in 1948. Supernaturally, this is something that God is doing. Here, Nehemiah said, I have sinned, we have sinned. And folks, we need to have that in our vocabulary here in America, as Christians here in America. I have sinned and we have sinned. I heard this week, 
and this was a tape from some, some time ago, but with anger in his voice and venom in his eyes, our president denounced Israel. And that just scares the snot out of me. Because God has a foreign policy initiative that goes clear back to the 12th chapter of Genesis. They who curse Israel shall be cursed. They who bless Israel shall be blessed. And it's a curse in kind that comes back to the one who curses. We need to repent and we need to, to, to acknowledge that I have sinned, that we have sinned as a nation. Fourth, his appeal is to God's promise. This is the second time. Remember, <coughs> remember I pray the word you commanded your servant Moses. In short, he reminds God of his promises to Israel and made that the basis for his prayer. Why do you suppose Jesus asked us to pray in the name of Jesus? It's by his authority, but more than that, I pray with confidence when I know that I am in tune with God's agenda. Ninety-some percent of the prayers of the average Christian is a bunch of nonsense. It's just vain repetition. It's worthless. But when you know you're in tune with God's agenda and you're praying based upon what God has revealed of himself and his word, you can pray with confidence. And I hope with passion, as Nehemiah did when he wept as he prayed. Finally, <clears throat> his asking is specific. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He simply asked that God would give him a positive audience with his boss. But the key thing to note is that Nehemiah was making himself available to be the answer to his prayer. Just yesterday, I was reading in Isaiah 6, and God says, who will go? Nehemiah, er, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. If our prayer is sincere and in faith, we will be willing to be the answer to the prayer. Prayer is the key to our to to our challenges, to our mountains. The songwriter said it this way, got any rivers you think are incrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. God delights in accomplishing the things that we can't pull off. But he awaits our cry he listens for our request. Nehemiah's position when facing a mountain was to get on his knees. Why does God call us to prayer? <clears throat> God gave us prayer primarily for our benefit. It makes us wait to focus on him. It clears our vision. It gives us perspective of that which is eternal. It quiets our hearts, removing our anxiety and instilling hope. And that activates our faith, which moves our feet.
Our feet will never move until we've been first on our knees. I believe that. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that as you called Nehemiah, you've called every one of us to face the contingencies and challenges of life, some of which you bring our way, some of which uh, we cause because of our frailty or our sin. But Father, you never leave nor forsake those who are your own. Help us, Father, to be men and women of the Word, to dig into it, find out the character of God and the promises of God, and to live our lives and to pray our prayer accordingly. I thank you, Father, that you have given us the significance of having purpose and a destiny in our lives until the very day that you call us home. Until that day, Father, may we be men and women that know what it is to be on our knees. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.